from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 223 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Thank you. So, so you've already packed your bags and been, you know, off to a galaxy far, far away on the Galactic Star Cruiser. So going to be packing your bags and going around the world with uh, Adventures by Disney on that big new adventure for 24 days that they uh, dis- that they announced. <laughs> uh, nope. I'm a very excited when I see someone do a complete breakdown of how you can do that trip for probably like $20,000. And then I'll be like, okay, that's that's something I can get a grip on one day in my life. <laughs> uh, not not for me, but I, I, and I doubt for you too. I mean, I think, plus you've already done all the parks. I have. I so. have done all the parks. And even on some of them, from, I mean, I've only glanced at the itinerary, which I'm really not impressed with, uh, because it, like, like in our, my little travel group that I have, my Diz travel group, we've been chatting about this all day. And, and, you know, they don't give you time to acclimate to the time zones sometimes. And they, uh, and in a couple of, uh, in a couple of the parks, the China parks, they don't have the Imagineering tour guides that we had w- when we went with the Diz. And I don't know. I mean, you can go on a round-the-world cruise for a lot less. Personally, the first thing that occurred to me was that I thought it was a publicity stunt to get people, to get social media, to get the news, because you know it's going to be picked up by the news outlets and all that, to talk about Adventures by Disney. And it'll get people, you know, they'll get clicks. It'll get people maybe to look at their other adventures that are, that look reasonable in price compared to that one. So I don't know. Part of me thinks that they're partly serious and it's partially to get clicks. If anybody listening does go on it, I hope you have a fabulous time and definitely reach out to us. We would love to hear about the trip. So this is an open invitation to be on the show. But anyway, but in this episode, we are continuing a series we began with an interview with Disney animator Andreas Deja on Walt's Nine Old Men. And we've talked about Ward Kimball and Les Clark. And in this episode, we will be talking about the career of Eric Larson. So let's start with talking about who the Nine Old Men were. These men were the core of Walt Disney's animation studio and the foundation of his entire enterprise. Walt called them his Nine Old Men, playing off President Franklin Roosevelt's term for the United States Supreme Court justices with whom he was having a disagreement and was threatening to stack the court by increasing the number of justices. Walt's Nine Old Men were Les Clark, 
Mark Davis, Ollie Johnston, Milt Call, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lounsbury, Wooly Reitherman, and Frank Thomas. So Eric Cleon Larson was born on September 1st, 1905 in Cleveland, Utah, and was the eldest of five brothers and two sisters. Eric started drawing when he was 10 years old and developed his talent as an artist in high school. He worked on the yearbook for four years and in his final year became its art director. He also sold illustrations to Westerner magazine. As a boy growing up on a ranch, Eric Larson planned to become a rancher until his second year of college and dreamt of becoming a writer and a journalist. But he also continued drawing. He wrote for the university newspaper and yearbook and drew illustrations for the university's humor magazine, Humoresque, which he also edited. Based upon a recommendation by Commercial A&E, who printed yearbooks, Eric also illustrated a yearbook for another university. Eric left university before graduation and took a job as an art director for nearly six years with Commercial A&E. In his spare time, he created oil and watercolor paintings and woodblock prints, for which he earned honorable mentions at an international exhibition in Los Angeles. One day at work, Eric looked out his window and saw a young woman. He told a co-worker that was the woman he would marry. Gertrude James worked in the building next to where Eric worked, and her third-floor office window was opposite his. They started a flirtation through their open windows till Eric finally made a date, and the attraction was instantaneous. They were married on February 17, 1933. Now that he was married, Eric looked for a job with more growth potential and thought about writing for radio. He had written a Western adventure serial when he was in school and took the script to Los Angeles radio station KHJ. Although they liked it, Eric was told he didn't know anything about writing for radio. They sent him to Richard Creedon for advice. Now, Richard Creedon, who was was a former radio writer, and he was now working in the story department at the Walt Disney Studio, he agreed to work with Eric on the script, but encouraged him to work at the Walt Disney Studio. Eric said he had done some cartooning, but never took it seriously as a job. He believed the process of animation was mechanical as you make a drawing between a drawing that someone else made. Creedon told Eric that the animated film will challenge any creative abilities he has or will ever develop. Eric applied and was hired by Ben Sharpstein, a director and the studio's manager, as an in-betweener. Eric did assistant work on several cartoon shorts, like Two Gun Mickey and Mickey's Service Station and The Tortoise and the Hare, with animator Hamilton Lusk, who Eric described as one of the most inspirational people he had ever met. Whilst other animator scenes were beautifully drawn with strong design, Eric was not a natural draftsman and had to work extra hard to keep up with animators like Milk Call and Mark Davis. His hard work paid off to achieve the character's performances. He also went to other animators and artists to ask for ideas to make his scenes look better. And this was the kind of teamwork Walt Disney liked, because he knew his artists could learn from each other. 
During his year working with Ham Lusk, Eric said he learned much about animation and technique. He also learned how a master teacher communicates effectively and handles people. Eric would apply what he learned from Ham when mentoring other animators. Eric also learned from Ham how to work with Walt Disney. Eric first met Walt in December 1933, shortly after Walt's daughter Diane was born. In the courtyard outside the Hyperion studio, Walt was talking to a director, and Eric passed by and said, Congratulations, Mr. Disney, and continued on his way. He then heard Walt say, Who the hell is that? When Eric told Ham about this, he said, Don't say Mr. Disney. You call him Walt. Never Mr. Disney. Eric got his big break when the studio began work on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Ham Lusk recommended Eric be promoted to full animator. So Eric was assigned to work with Milt Call animating Snow White's forest friends. This was a huge, labor-intensive assignment because the movements of all the deer, chipmunks, rabbits, and birds had to be synchronized and choreographed. Rather than animating the animals separately on different levels, Eric animated every animal on a single piece of paper to keep the motion fluid. The animator studied real animal motion in an effort to achieve realistic motion in the film. And Eric was happy with the scenes, with the exception of the deer, which he described as having flower sack bodies. After Snow White, Eric returned to working on the short films and especially enjoyed animating the soft, cuddly animals in Farmyard Symphony and The Ugly Duckling. Eric was very comfortable with the Disney style of the 1930s. But Eric's next assignment would require more realistic body motion and developed personality. Figaro the Kitten in Walt Disney's Pinocchio. Originally, the early concepts for Figaro were a caricature of an adult cat. But Eric preferred Figaro to be a mischievous, lovable kitten. And Eric based Figaro's motions on real cat motions with a gentle caricature. Eric's inspiration for Figaro's expressions and personalities was his 14-year-old nephew with all the typical mood swings of a child that age who has affection for his parents. And Figaro's relationship with Cleo the goldfish was a typical brother-sister relationship. Some of the most beautiful animation Eric created for Figaro is in an early scene when Geppetto and Figaro have settled into bed, and Geppetto realizes he didn't open the window and asks Figaro to do it. Eric realized Figaro's potential in this scene and first showed the kitten's annoyance at being asked to do this chore, and he throws off his blankets. Eric animated the body of Figaro beautifully as he hops across Geppetto's bed, sinks into the fluffy bed cover, showing the weight of the kitten's body. Then using the squash and stretch method, Figaro believably tumbles on the floor, crosses the bed, jumps up to the windowsill, and opens the window. In this scene, Eric captured the charm and personality of Figaro. 
Walt appreciated Eric's work, and rather than praising him directly after seeing his pencil sketches of Figaro, Walt told a director to give Eric all the footage he wants. Eric also learned from Walt's criticism when they watched the dailies in the room dubbed The Sweat Box. Although some of Walt's observations could be vague and ambiguous, such as Walt's I'm disappointed after seeing Eric's drawing of the wise old owl and Bambi, Eric could figure out what Walt meant. In this instance, Walt meant the beautiful artistry of the owl would be difficult to animate, and Eric altered his drawings of the owl. That's like a superpower that is just <laughs> so short and not very helpful at all. You know, not not saying that in offense to Walt Disney, but I mean, that's we know that's the type of person he was, too. So to be able to, to decipher it and then find the winning formula, I mean, that's that's a feat. It is. And, and you know, in my reading about Eric, it. You know, Eric took a beating sometimes in the sweatbox. Well, they all did. I mean, all of the animators did. Because Walt could sometimes be direct and explain to them what he didn't like. And in other times, yeah, he was very vague and left them second-guessing. And yeah, but but Eric, um, Eric could see the... Eric knew his character so well and knew his artistry so well he could see where the improvements were needed and this is what made him such a great mentor um later in his career yeah i mean to be able to be uh to be able to look at your own work and to also see the holes on it uh like i mean that's just that's special because i mean there's so many people out there myself included who struggle to see the downside sometimes of what they're able to create so if you can if you can take that criticism and actually take it to what you're doing and and figure out how to make it better i mean that's just that's it's very admirable mhm yeah i agree in addition to Figaro, Walt asked Eric to animate the marionettes in Stromboli's puppet show. Now, these characters were not supposed to look alive nor have real body motion since they were being manipulated by an off-screen puppeteer. So to make these puppets look real to audiences, Eric knew not to use the squash and stretch animation when using when, when their wooden bodies hit the floor and each other. And Eric also had to synchronize their movements to the song, I've Got No Strings, and he created a convincing marionette performance. And that performance always amazes me because the, you, you had to, he had to animate all the strings that were would get tangled up with each other in the dances, and then they were interacting with Pinocchio, who was much more fluid of a marionette. So I, I think it's brilliant animation. Oh, I, I agree with it, too. The entire sequence is just so enjoyable. <laughs> now, Eric's next assignment was the centaurs in the pastoral sequence in Walt Disney's Fantasia. And the animator Fred Moore designed these creatures in a round cartoony style, which Eric found easy to draw. However, the challenge was getting a handle on the correct body rhythm for the fantasy creatures. Eric felt the characters were not designed properly and looked stiff, and he was embarrassed by the animation. Years later, he said, 
The girls look okay for the most part, but the men never come to life properly. And this shows how seriously Eric took the characters he animated when he criticized his own animation 40 years later. What Eric was happy with was his animation of the Pegasus family in the same sequence. Eric was able to capture the elegant movements of the winged horses as they flew through the air and landed gracefully in the water. For Walt Disney's Bambi, Eric animated a real flying creature, Friend Owl. Eric very much identified with this character and was responsible for developing and animating him. Eric's own gentle personality greatly influenced Friend Owl's character, who shows a fatherly affection for the other forest creatures. In the last few years of his career, Eric mentored and trained young animators who felt Eric was like a kind and patient grandfather with a zany sense of humor, just like Friend Owl. Eric was one of four supervising animators on Bambi and managed a staff of close to 30 people, which was the largest crew on the film. There was always someone with a problem, often not related to production, and Eric patiently listened. Yet he was able to obtain the required footage out of most of his team and was one of the best footage men in the studio. No one knew how or when Eric did it. He would complete his directing chores all day till 5 p.m., then animated Friend Owl and other creatures until 9 p.m. each night for four months. When Eric arrived at work on May 28, 1941, he discovered his wing of the studio was empty and his team missing. Nearly all of them had joined the 300 employees in a labor strike against the Walt Disney Studio. The strike lasted till September. Most of the strikers were the assistant animators, in-betweeners, inkers, and painters who wanted higher wages and job security. None of the animators who had become the Nine Old Men joined in the strike, nor did most of the studio staff. Eric sympathized with the strikers' demands, but felt this was the wrong way to go about it. When the strike was settled and the union and the studio became unionized, Eric was elected president of the union unit. He did not seek the position. He was elected because he was respected for his quiet, mature judgment and was able to solve union conflicts calmly. Eric was concerned that Walt might feel Eric was double-crossing him, but a labor relations advisor explained to Walt why Eric had taken the difficult position. When the animation board was formed in the early 1940s, Eric was a member. The board suggested who should be hired and fired, and suggested where animators, assistants, and in-betweeners should be assigned, based on their strengths, and Walt listened to their recommendations. In the 1940s, the Walt Disney Studio focused on creating short films due to the war. Eric animated Goofy for several shorts, including Tiger Trouble and African Diary. Due to his experience animating the Pegasus family in Fantasia, Eric assisted Frank Thomas with the animation of Burrito, the flying donkey in the flying Gauchito. I think that's a charming um, little character. Yeah. In The Three Caballeros, Eric animated the mad Araucan bird like a mechanical doll that puttered along, hiccuping and chattering. 
The bird gleefully appears from the top and bottom, then the left and right of the screen. Eric's animation of the crazy bird made the character a highlight of the film. That bird is one of my favorites. Oh, absolutely. In, in The Three Caballeros. Yeah, no, it, it's so memorable and just so uh, frantic all over the place. And uh, I uh, just absolutely love it. And it, it's so cool, too, to see the process, um, that how how it all kind of adapted from uh you know his his earlier characters to get to that point uh, a a much different uh departure for him now eric was now known as an expert in animating birds so he was assigned to create sasha the eccentric eccentric little bird in peter and the wolf Eric was able to capture the extreme and intense emotions of Sasha, from his happiness at first seeing Peter to his fear in meeting the wolf. Eric gave Sasha a nervous, energetic personality and movement. To give Sasha fast and snappy actions, he would have Sasha hold a pose for about 10 frames before moving on to another action. When Eric was teaching new animators, he told them that at least eight frames of film are needed for any pose to register on the screen. This timing was needed for Eric's next set of characters in Walt Disney's Song of the South. Eric realized the personality potential in the voice actor's recordings of the main animated characters, a slow bear, fast fox, and smart rabbit. One of the scenes Eric animated was when Br'er Rabbit is caught in a fox's trap. Br'er Rabbit is in an awkward position, with all acting limited to head turns and hand gestures because he's all tied up in this rope and hanging from a tree. Eric was still able to animate Br'er Rabbit with enough confidence to talk Br'er Bear into setting him free. Eric would use this clip in his classes on action analysis to demonstrate how far you can take personality animation in using speed and energy. And, and you know, I've been reading a lot lately about the Nine Old Men, and it is a shame that we will never see Song of the South for the foreseeable future, because with every single one of the nine old men always talk about the superb animation sequences in song of the South and how proud they are of them. So um, it, it is too bad. And hopefully someday, you know, that, that, you know, people will be able to see, you know, see that and their work on that. Some of Eric's most beautiful animation can be seen in his next film, Melody Time. He was a supervising animator on the Once Upon a Wintertime sequence, which is a love story in a Mary Blair-inspired setting. Eric loved the simple lines and shapes of the two main characters, Joe and Jenny, because it enabled him to focus on their animation. And Andreas Deja has said that animators who have difficulty drawing their characters often produce stiff animation because of the struggle they go through in putting a good pose or expression on paper. So this relates back to how Eric felt about the uh, centaurs in Fantasia. He had trouble focusing them, drawing them, and then felt they were stiff. But the the fluidity of the skaters in Melody Time, in Once Upon a Winter Time, is just exquisite. And this is one of my must-watch um, cartoons at Christmas time. 
Another sequence in Melody Time is Little Toot, and that was also animated by Eric. Even though Little Toot is a tugboat, Eric first contemplated the personality characteristics of the mischievous childlike character before starting the animation because the human qualities of a character are primary and their being an inanimate object is secondary. Eric had to portray Little Toot's emotions without the character having arms and legs. So Eric was able to show emotion by having Little Toot hop on water and wiggle his rear before speeding forward. This is convincing because Eric observed these same movements in a happy child and in a dog before it jumps. Eric was a proponent that personality animation must have its roots in the artist's observations of real-life situations. The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad combined shorter versions of two projects that were planned as separate full-length features before the war. Eric animated several sequences before the war, but when the short, short subject was released after the war, Hamilton Lusk received film credit for all the scenes Eric had animated. Even though Eric had volunteered to supervise or animate sequences, knowing he would receive no screen credit, the involuntarily lack of credit for his animated scenes in Mr. Toad angered him. Eric got emotionally involved with his characters, and he felt his animation, like Toad defending himself in court, was some of his best. He also animated some of the interactions between um, Molly and Toad, the, uh, because Molly was very a very emotional character, and, and Eric was very proud of that. So um, that is why um, this upset him so much that he got no credit for his work. Yeah, I could totally see that. Mm -hmm. I'd be upset, too. (laughs) Eric switched from fantasy characters to a human character in his next project, Walt Disney's Cinderella. Eric served as a supervising animator for Cinderella, along with Mark Davis. They both created key personality scenes for Cinderella in the film. But it was Eric who introduced Cinderella in the opening scenes of the film, in which she interacts with her animal friends and sings, A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. Eric's animation of her is feminine and natural, and makes the audience immediately like the character and sympathetic to her situation of being reduced to a scullery maid. Alice in Wonderland was also designed to be a realistic character. Eric was assigned to animate Alice's introductory scenes when she is sitting in a branch of a tree listening to her older sister read from a history book. Eric effectively conveys Alice's boredom as she puts together a floral wreath and places it on the head of her cat, Dinah. This scene establishes Alice as a real girl living in her own colorful world. Alice's wide dress was a bit of an animation challenge, because when Alice moved, the animators had to make sure to get the folds of the dress right so it didn't look too light or too heavy. With his experience animating Cinderella and the Prince dancing in the ballroom scene, Eric had the experience of moving the folds on a fabric dress. Eric also animated the sequence with the caterpillar and captured his haughtiness masterfully. 
Eric was asked to animate the opening scenes for Walt Disney's Peter Pan, including the first time we see Peter Pan in silhouette at night upon the roof of the Darling family's house. Eric made Peter move like a dancer, and his poses read clearly on the screen. When Peter is moving and in flight, the animation is fluid. Eric animated the scenes in which Peter teaches the Darling children to fly. In later years, Eric said this scene was hard work since he had to keep the children in perspective as they fly into the camera and away from it using the multiplane camera as they flew from London to Neverland. Eric was proud of this scene because he said it gave you a thrill. I've always thought this is one of the best scenes in the film. I don't know. I think it's magical. It's exciting. I think, and I do think Eric captured the thrill of being able to fly. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Now, the singer Peggy Lee was Eric's inspiration for his next character, the sultry Peg and Lady and the Tramp. Of all the dog personalities in the film, Peg is one of the more memorable due to Eric's animation. Her character with a worldly past was a novelty, and Eric took full advantage of this. During her song, He's a Tramp, Peg sings some of her lines over a raised shoulder, her fur provocatively covering one eye with exaggerated hip movements. Eric's animation talent helped Peg become the star of the film. Years later, Eric joked that his co-workers must have thought he was in a brothel when he animated Peg. And they said he um, always blushed when he admitted that Peggy Lee was his um, inspiration due to the way she moved and walked. Walt was so impressed with Eric's work on Lady and the Tramp that he offered him the opportunity to co-direct Sleeping Beauty after Wilfred Jackson suffered a heart attack. Eric would say this was his downfall. They had a script in 1951, but there were many revisions and delays, mostly caused by Walt. After the war, Walt had less time to focus on animation due to the live-action films, his television series, the planning planning of Disneyland Park. Everything from films to theme parks required Walt's personal approval, which slowed things down. There was also a large layoff after Lady and the Tramp, so Eric had very little help. So all this resulted in everything moving very slowly. Walt wanted Sleeping Beauty to be a moving illustration, and he said he didn't care how long it takes. Eric was determined to deliver on what Walt wanted, but what Walt wanted wasn't easy. Ivan Earle, the film's art director, based his designs on opulent and detailed medieval tapestries and illuminated manuscripts. Walt liked the look of Earle's distinctive drawings that were cold, angular, dark, elegant, and detailed, and wanted that in the film. And secure in Walt's support, Earl refused to compromise with the Disney artists and animators, and his argumentative personality and sharp tongue put off many of the animators, except for Eric, who got along with Earl. Eric took over the most romantic scene in the film when Aurora and Prince Philip meet in the forest. Eric's goal was to make this scene one of the most beautiful pieces of animated filmmaking. 
To create the enchanting forest scene, Eric instructed his layout and background artists to extensively use the multiplane camera. Artists painted several individual layers of trees, bushes, and branches that were photographed at different distances under the camera to create the illusion of real depth. This was very effective in taking the audience into the world of of the characters, but it was also time-consuming and expensive. Although Eric achieved his goal in creating one of the most beautiful scenes in animation, it was also one of the most expensive, and Walt was not pleased. Um, I think I read that uh, the well, Eric was told, do you know how much this is costing? And he was advised it. This scene cost $10,000. And Eric was shocked because he said, you know, nobody was telling me how much this cost. And he did not see any reason why it should be so expensive to create this scene. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's kind of one of the things, though, that I always struggle with, like with animation and understanding how much it costs. I, I, I guess I've just never been able to put it together. I mean, I know the hours being put in and the materials and there, there's a lot that goes into it, but um. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I, my head's just never been able to wrap around it completely. Yeah. Now, Eric was very precise when he handed out notes to animators in the sweatbox. He explained precisely how to correct the situations. The notes were long and detailed, and artist Bernie Mattinson suspected that management thought Eric was making extra work for people. Mattinson felt it was wrong that Eric got a lot of the blame for the cost overruns. Ken Peterson, the production supervisor, believes that Walt never really appreciated Eric, and also that it was bad casting for Walt to have placed Eric in a director position on Sleeping Beauty. Said Peterson, He wasn't up to dealing with Walt at that level at all. He was almost speechless when Walt was there. He should never have been placed in that position. Eric got some comic relief from the constant stress when he took on a new assistant animator, Roland Crump, who was full of life and high spirits. His frat boy antics amused the straight-laced Eric. Toward the end of production, Walt brought in an efficiency expert from Cadillac to get the film completed. After working on almost three-fourths of Sleeping Beauty, Eric was replaced with Jerry Geronimi as the supervising director, and Eric was listed as sequence director in the film credits. Eric continued to work on films after Sleeping Beauty like 101 Dalmatians, The Sword in the Stone, Mary Poppins, The Jungle Book, and Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, but he was not given the opportunity to develop characters in these films. Although he worked on characters like the Dalmatian Puppy, Sir Ector, Wart, Bagheera, and Mowgli, these characters lacked the charm of Eric's earlier characters. Eric's final character that could be considered his own was Roquefort in The Aristocats. Eric was able to take an un- unlikely character of a mouse who is friends with the cat family and make him funny, charming, and a bit eccentric. When Roquefort shares a meal with Duchess and her kittens, he brings along a giant cracker, dips it in their warm milk, and eats it with great gusto. 
When Roquefort discovers the cats have been kidnapped, Eric has them put on a Sherlock Holmes costume and sets out to find them. Eric animates Roquefort with quick mouse-like movements. During the production of the Aristocats, studio executives came to the realization that most of its animation staff was nearing retirement. To preserve the future of Walt Disney Animation, a new talent had to be create had to be recruited and trained in classic animation techniques. Eric was selected to be the head of this new training program, and he turned out to be the perfect person, as he had become the person the other artists would go to for personal and professional advice and for help when they were experiencing artists' block. Eric's office was next to a large bullpen that would house a rotation of young new artists learning their craft, and Eric was always available to provide encouragement and guidance as they learned how to animate. He structured the training program to include several components. Eric would regularly give lectures on all topics regarding the production of Disney animation. He also worked with each trainee individually and helped them express themselves in their animated scenes. Eric said perfect motion was not enough. Character animation at Disney had to include the artist's individual point of view. Taking over the training of new animators breathed new life into Eric and his career. According to Andreas Deja, who took courses led by Eric, he said Eric always made it clear to new animators that top-quality work was key to any Disney animated production. For these new animators, Eric represented the Disney philosophy of bringing things to life in a believable, genuine way. Eric taught his trainees that Walt Disney never talked down to an audience. Instead, he tried to bring you up to his level. Eric's involvement with young people grew stronger after the passing of his wife, Gertrude, on September 12, 1975, after a long battle with cancer. Eric was reportedly devastated by her passing. Eric once said his wife got along better with Walt than he did because she wasn't afraid of Walt and I was. Twenty-five new artists were hired between 1970 and 1977, and the first film they worked on with the studio's remaining old-timers was The Rescuers. The film was a box office success, and more trainees were hired. The studio at the time was likened to a 1940s college campus where everybody knew everybody, and Eric was the college professor. But underneath this idyllic surface, discontent was brewing. There were three groups forming at the studio. Walt's boys, consisting of the remaining nine old men, layout artists, veteran animators, and story people who had worked with Walt. The CalArt kids, who were recent graduates from the California Institute of the Arts, founded by the Disney Brothers and Bluth's boys, who were older former trainees recently promoted to animators and assistant animators who were loyal to animator Don Bluth. Management recognized Don Bluth's potential, and Ron Miller thought Bluth would be able to take over the studio someday. As Bluth and his team gained more influence, Eric was increasingly sidestepped, which upset him. Bluth was not happy with the recent cost-cutting on animation um, 
features and sent memos to Ron Miller stating the studio could do better and that it wasn't Disney enough and they needed a return to the 1930s. The cartoon short, The Small One, caused everything to explode. The film originated with Eric's team, so all the new talent would have their own project to work on with Eric. Pete Young, who was learning to create storyboards, found it in the studio library of option properties and took it to Eric, who let him create the storyboards with veteran storyman Vance Cherry and Mel Shaw. They took it to Ron Miller and other executives who saw its potential and greenlit the project. Eric assumed he was directing the film and asked Bernie Mattinson to help him storyboard it out in more detail. Eric invited veteran animator Cliff Nordberg to work with him on some of the animation, which he then planned to turn over to the trainees and new animators. Everyone went home happy on Friday. When they returned on Monday, everything was gone. Every drawing, every storyboard was gone. Over the weekend, management made the decision to give the project to Don Bluth. When Eric was informed, he was deeply hurt and realized he was no longer appreciated. He felt the old days were gone. Eric remained teaching, but it was never the same. Years later, when Disney historian John Canemaker asked Bluth about the Small Ones production, Bluth said it was his understanding that Larson was not deeply involved and that Small One was something he directed to keep the crew busy till Pete's Dragon. He said Larson may have been involved in storyboarding, but he didn't get to the direction area. Eric was personally devastated, but he loved the studio so much that he remained with the studio. It would turn out to be a good decision because Bluth resigned from the studio in 1979 to start his own studio and took 14 animators and assistants with him. Ron Miller felt betrayed and outraged. When I learned all this, this really gave me a new perspective on the small one, I think. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I need to always give it another shot because I don't get motivated to watch it, I guess is the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. It's it's not my, my favorite Christmas uh, special that has been done by by far. But, you know, I, I maybe I need to look at it from a different perspective now with this knowledge and see see how I feel about it all. I like it. It's one that I definitely always watch at Christmas time because it's one of the few religious themed, you know, cartoon shorts out there. Um, but uh, I, I, ha- I, I'm not a big fan of some of the musical numbers in it. I thought, you know, it probably could have done better with a little less music. Yeah, so in it, I, I think that's part of what kind of definitely brings it down for me a little bit but you know it's also uh, yeah christmas for me my ways and i i'm very unlikely to give something a second shot if i'm just like okay with it you know i'm that's why i still can't give the the jim carrey christmas carol uh, a fair chance because i hated it immediately you know, but I, it's also awful i st- i still have not watched it a second time every year i say i'm going to because i watch so many versions of a christmas carol because it is one of my favorite um, excuse me christmas films but i just just can't bring myself to the jim carrey one not good so 
I will. I will someday. Maybe I need to watch it in July or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Completely out of context. <laughs> see how you yeah. feel. <laughs> anyway, recruitment of new talent was escalated, and the loyal Eric Larson, the last of Walt's nine old men at the studio, supervised training. And as part of all of this, he would go out to schools, universities, art colleges, and recruit um, talent to come to the studio as well. But those who had known Eric for years noticed a melancholy in him, which increased in 1984 when an attempted hostile takeover of the the studio resulted in the resignation of Ron Miller and the introduction of new management that included Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who had live-action film backgrounds. Rumors started that animation would be eliminated, and it was fueled when the animation department was moved off the studio lot and the animation building was converted to offices. Eric had to move out of the sunny office he'd occupied since the 1940s and into a small windowless space on the bottom floor of a former warehouse. Eric felt that this was a slap in the face and that the new management didn't care. The rumors of animation being shut down ended when Roy E. Disney took charge of the department and they were given the chance to prove themselves. Eric remained with the studio and was a consultant on several films, including The Fox and the Hound, Mickey's Christmas Carol, The Great Mouse Detective, and The Black Cauldron, an animated feature in the works since 1971. It was a box office disaster, and the new studio management was horrified by its financial failure and critical reviews. Eric retired on February 28, 1986, at 81 years of age. In a newspaper interview a few months later, Eric was openly homesick for Disney. When Eric left the studio, he was very despondent. He retired only because he didn't like the new management. He was loyal to the company and adored Walt Disney. When Eric retired, he packed up his office and his lifetime of working at the Walt Disney Studio, went home, put it all on his dining room table, covered it with plastic, and there it remained till his passing. Eric spent most of his time in his study. Many of Eric's former trainees would phone or take him out to lunch or dinner in an attempt to cheer him up. His trainees continued to visit Eric when he was admitted to a Pasadena hospital, where he passed on October 25th, 1988. He was inducted as a Disney legend in 1989. In a 1986 interview, Eric reflected on his animation and directing career and had this to say. One thing about this business... Nobody is an island unto himself. We used to have a saying that everybody worked over everybody else's shoulder and in everybody else's lap. That's what impressed me about that darn place. Everybody was willing to share the knowledge they had. You didn't have to use what someone else said, but it was given without any petty feelings of superiority. Eric's contributions to the art of animation cannot be overstated. Eric's students included Brad Bird, Tim Burton, Ron Clements, Mark Henn, John Musker, John Pomeroy, and Henry Selleck, who had become the animators and directors responsible for ushering in the second golden age of Disney animation in the 1980s. 
His legacy to the future of Disney animation was making sure a new generation of animators understood the significance, the potential, and the challenge of Disney personality animation and continuing the medium Walt Disney pioneered. Oh, the, the story starts out so happy and ends so sadly. Yeah, it, it does. But I mean, that's a, a good story to tell. Um, you know, we can look back fondly on these important people in Disney history and just think, you know, mm-hmm. because the fact that we know their names and still remember them today, that it was all it was all good. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the creations they made made us happy, but it wasn't always perfect. So that's, that's why I think it's important that that we hear about them in this way. Absolutely. And we're enjoying the legacy of Eric to this day because of his training of the young animators who who some of them are still at the Disney studio today. Yep. So um so we we should be very grateful to Eric and definitely remember him. Do you have a favorite character out of the characters we discussed? And he did more than than what I've discussed. But do you have a, a particularly favorite one? That oh, that's that's a very tough question uh, to answer, but I, I would probably say the Arquan bird for sure. Uh-huh. But if if not, also I, there is something about Figaro that makes me like cats, and I can't stand cats. I'm not a cat person at all, so I at least have to respect Figaro in that way. It's funny; those are my two favorite characters as well. It's a bird, Ericon bird, however you say it, and uh, Figaro. I like cats. I have three. Yeah. And none of them named Figaro, but uh, I just think that the way he developed the personality of Figaro was just so amazing and makes him so sweet and made Figaro popular because somehow he became Minnie Mouse's cat yeah. in a number of the cartoon shorts and became the... The the, uh, the foil of Pluto <laughs> in a few of them too, so um, yeah. So, uh, so well, and yeah, Figaro's so like, like yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but no, Figaro is to me. It's just of a quintessential cute cat. That's what what comes to my mind, and you know, it's I I feel like if I was to ever look for a cat, it would kind of have to hold up to that standard. Um, you know, I, mm-hmm. that, that's at least how my mind has always worked with Figaro. So I, I think mm-hmm. that's a testament to the character. Absolutely. And, and to the artist who created him. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now it's time for this week in Disney history. I think it's my turn this week to start out. And, I'm going to go with uh, June 24th, 1893, because Roy Oliver Disney is born in Chicago, Illinois. Of course, he was the middle of five children, and we all know that he, along with his younger brother Walt, started the Walt Disney Company. So Roy guided the business side of the Disney Company, leaving his brother Walt free to produce and create and spend all the money that Roy managed to bring in to the studio. Um, Roy served as president of Walt Disney Productions from 1945 to 1968, 
and chairman of the board from 1964 until his death in 1971. And Walt always said that, you know, he could not have accomplished what he did without his brother Roy. And um, Roy was a modest man. It was Roy's idea to change the name of the Florida park from Disney World to Walt Disney World after Walt passed in 1966, because, again, he wanted people to remember that all of this was Walt's idea. Um, He married Edna Francis in 1925. He was the father of Roy E. Disney, whom we mentioned earlier who definitely had a role in in the formation of the company as we know it today, and Disney Animation. Um, Of course, visitors to the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World, you know that in Town Square, there is a statue of Roy O. Disney sitting on a park bench beside Minnie Mouse. And I don't know why we don't have it at Disneyland, because he certainly brought in the finances for Disneyland. But... um, the corresponding uh, statue is actually outside the Team Disney building at Disney's corporate headquarters in Burbank, California. But you think they could have found a spot for it well, somewhere at Disneyland? What I was going to ask <laughs> you, where would you put it in Disneyland if you had a, a, a spot? Or do you have one in mind where, where it would fit in? I don't know. I always thought that it would look good out, out front of the Opera House. Like I, as much as I like where it is in Walt Disney World, I actually like when uh, you know it's Christmas time and they have to move it uh, over on the other side of the, you know, not right down front and center when they have to move it in the side in front of the restrooms and City Hall and the the firehouse. Like uh, something about it, it feels it feels more natural that mm-hmm. way. Like. Yeah, he would just be sitting yeah. there versus like photo op right in the middle. Yeah, my other choice would be somewhere along the edge of the hub because, you know, sitting there with Minnie sort of off to the side is Walt is front and center with Mickey, you know, the partner statue. Anyway, so what do you have for us this week, Craig? Oh, mine is, it feels like a good one, at least for me, but uh, I'm going on this day to remember uh, a very, very important attraction to me and probably a lot of people out there. 1995, we had the official opening of the extraterrestrial alien encounter in Tomorrowland, Um, the easily by far the, the scariest attraction in a domestic Walt Disney World park and one that I just, I, I miss it to this day. And as Stitch's great escape just sits vacant, you know, ripped up and it's not reopening, but at the same time, we also don't know if it's ever going to be used for anything. It makes me miss this attraction so much more because if it could have survived, and stuck around instead of the conversion to Stitch, I, I think it would be a massive hit today, and uh, it would it would add something to Walt Disney World that's just not currently really there. Like just a ride, and I mean it was it was scary, and it's like uh, even even the older I got, I still got nervous every single time I went in there. It's it was so hard 
to disconnect that there wasn't actually a man-eating alien bouncing around the room and you could be the next victim i mean it's just uh, you know it it was the perfect use of sound and other effects to genation and i thought it, it masterful storytelling in terms of attraction and just it, it is it is so missed in my book and Gosh, I would I would love for them to revisit this idea, especially in that space. But I don't I don't think that's ever going to happen unless Bob Chapek, deep down, is a, uh, a, a closet fan <laughs> of Alien Encounter and champions to bring it up. Not not unless there's if they make a film about it, film franchise, and they could, but uh, they could. <laughs> But I loved I loved that attraction. I thought it was just so different, and I and I and I liked the fact that it was it fit into that science fiction theme. My kids loved it. Um, Carol, not so much. But do you think that today audiences would maybe f- enjoy it more than they did back yeah. then, just because people are more sophisticated? We've seen more scary films and things like that. Yes, a thousand, thousand percent. I think it would be, if it debuted today, you know, I I think it would probably hit well. But as I said before, if it could have just survived to today, I think at this point, you would have that next generation of the people to us when we were going to the, the parks. It was that scary thing, that and Tower of Terror were the two terrifying attractions. And so I think there'd be people in my generation wanting to scare the bejesus out of their kids by taking them on uh, alien encounter. I mean, the fact is that like orange bird is an icon. Uh, figment is an icon when in the nineties with alien and like I had my skippy plush and you know, that was, mm-hmm. that was a big deal. I wish I still had my old t-shirts, not that they would fit me anyways, but I, I wanted everything skippy and I, I can only imagine if, if they released some skippy merchandise today, even though people would have no idea where it's from, uh, because there is no, there, there's really no retaining that character now that Stitch's greatest. If they dove into that, people would be buying it up. So I, I totally think that that had it been around today, it, it still would have been huge. And, you know, even like Tim Curry being a part of the pre-show, it's like it, it, a lot of people, even though Tim Curry's, you know, he's not doing well health-wise, uh, I feel like people are finally appreciating him uh, to the level that oh, I, I think it would be huge if it was if it was able to be around. But you know, yeah. it, it it closed. <laughs> you know, you know how they could have made it work today with all the IPs and all that is then have us saved by the Avengers. Have <laughs> <laughs> I? You know, I just it's it is it's one of those things where they are looking for so many ways to, you know, not just properties, but also create them out of Disney parks. Think about how ripe it would have been to explore excess tech and, 
and find out about this company and how they screw up with these things along the way. And um, I, I, I don't know. I just think I think there would have been something there to make it a series. Granted, a lot of the people who were in the original show and pre-show for, uh, you know, necessarily in you know, just not, not relevant in that way. So they would have had to, they made something like that. Uh, nowadays they would have had to, to create a new lore and new characters around it, but it, it honestly, it, it could have been converted in to an actual TV show or, mm-hmm. or a movie if they wanted it to. I mean, it's just, it's right. Oh, there. especially now with Disney plus. Where, where they they just toss all kinds of things yeah. on there. And considering <laughs> we know that, you know, there was definitely inspiration from the original Alien movie, which is now a Disney movie, technically, through the acquisition of Fox. Like, it just, it's it all, it all pieces together in that way. But it will, it will remain missed, at least in my heart, and I'm sure a lot of people out there. All right. Well, I saw that uh, D23 is starting to make announcements for the expo and all that. Have you seen that? They, um, <clears throat> excuse me, just some of the highlights, like Friday, September 9th. It's, they're calling it Disney 100 kicks off the expo on Friday, September 9th. And it's going to be an epic presentation. It includes the Disney Legends Awards ceremony and Bob Chapek is going to be there unless Bob Iger invites him, you know, over for dinner again. And so it'll be interesting to see who are, um, who's going to be legends. Yeah this time and who's like really a disney legend and who is because disney bought something so they're a legend <laughs> right you know and then um and then they're going to have at 3 30 they're going to have all the disney live action pixar animation studio and walt disney animation studios announcements and all that are there any upcoming films that you think they're going to really push for this i i and also, they're going to have talk about Disney Plus too on this too. I I genuinely don't know. I have not been great about paying attention to what's upcoming, mm-hmm. and I'm also like, you know, I don't think I, I can't remember in the grand scheme thing of all of this, but we still have to see more from like the the Peter Pan movie with um with jude law in it at that point in time so i i I think you know i I know there's all the the disney plus stuff that we've known is coming but it's like you know when they announce these things they announce them in such a big batch with so so many things coming at once that it's hard for me to remember i know everything that's coming i didn't realize they're they're doing a live action Peter Pan, I missed that one. Or I put it out of my head because I'm just as sick of these live action films that just suck the heart of the Yeah, it's of the original films out it of it. It is Peter and Wendy. And that's the Peter Pan and Wendy is the mm-hmm. official title of it. And yeah, Jude Law is playing Captain Hook in it, and that's I I think it's if I'm reading correctly here, the uh, it, it could actually be interesting because I believe the person made the uh, remake of Pete's Dragon as well as I don't know if you saw it, but um, uh, uh, the Greed Knight 
that released last year with Dev Patel. Um, no, I didn't see that one. It was fantastic. So, I mean, but just knowing what he did with Peach Dragon, I, I think you can kind of understand the type of filmmaker he is. So, yeah. it you know, it has potential based on that. I liked Peach Dragon. You know, I, I like, I know you don't care for the original. I like the original. I felt sorry for Shelley Winters, but, <laughs> but uh, I did like the live action one. So as well. Then um, Saturday, September 10th, they're going to talk about uh, Marvel Studios and Lucasfilm. Um, will be making their uh, announcements. So that'll be exciting. They're going to have Disney branded television too. I'm not quite as excited about that. Although they are talking about the, um, there's, I guess National Treasure is going to be a dis on Disney Plus, a series. Yeah. It's the, and, the one that it sounds, it's nothing like the original movies, movies but oh. they're keeping the, the sidekick. Um, Justin Bartha's the actor mm -hmm. and I can't remember the name of his character, National Treasure, but he's like the only one. They don't have Nicolas Cage in it? We different oh. take on it. Um, I, I can't even remember the name of the the actor that they they have for it. But yeah, it's just it's whatever whatever we know um, National Treasure as before. This is this is not it. But hopefully, it has you know something something that is you know hopefully it has some of the same inspiration adventure side to it but it's it's not the uh it's not the return of all the characters that that we know and love from the original movies oh rats oh well now i'm not as excited and then of course they're bringing back the santa claus so i know you'll be excited about that well, or are they not having tim this. yeah yeah it's going to be like uh, i think a little I think they're continuing the series. I think Tim Allen is actually going to be in it. And it's going to be a Disney Plus um, uh, film. Well, the only reason why I question that, I haven't heard anything about this. Uh, so maybe I was completely oblivious to it. But the only thing that I noticed from it was that um, that when you look at it, and even written out on D23, which is why I question it, they spelled it out the Santa Claus C L A U S and has oh has an, an e. e in it so yeah. it makes me think that this is something different and see I, I thought I heard saw an announcement that Tim Allen was going to be in it I might be wrong you're right according to this Tim Allen is returning for a Disney Plus Santa Claus series on sat on sunday the 11th th this is the other big one josh tomorrow is going to be um talking about disney parks experiences and products and see we're going to find out what's going on there of course the big big rumor is we're going to hear about disneyland's tomorrowland supposedly that's the announcement what is going to I happen feel, to it is going to be like one of the we big say ones. that every single D23 Expo. <laughs> I know we do. We absolutely do. And we're going to hear all about what's going on at all the other parks, international parks. It's going to be fabulous. And then we'll talk, then we'll find out about some little show that's being introduced here at yeah. our parks. 
Or make a you big know, deal for a parade that yeah. runs days and then never comes back. Right. And then, you know, people are hoping that the e-ticket attraction over at our Adventures campus will get greenlit, but I don't think it will. No, not in time for Expo. Yeah. Well, at least not the announcement for it. I mean, maybe they'll make more details known about um, the Princess and the Frog retheming of, of, you know, Splash Mountain. Or maybe they'll let us know what they're doing with um, the old Swiss Family Robinson Tarzan's treehouse at you know over at um, in our our Adventureland at Disneyland. If they're not done with it, yeah, I mean, because I, I feel like they're kind of at the point with uh, you know it. It feels a little far off to wait for D twenty three Expo to announce something for it, considering that's all the way in September, and I feel like we're going to be able to start seeing visible progress on it sooner than later, even with you know trying to scrim it off and stuff. But uh, the uh, question, the Princess and the Frog stuff, because I know they're supposed to make the announcement about that at Essence Fest in July in New Orleans. So, Oh, like, okay. Uh, yeah, so it's like, I mean, I feel like they have to mention it, but they're kind of, they're using that opportunity to already talk about it. Mm-hmm. But then again, I, as, as I was tracking all that down when someone informed me about it, one reporter from a news station asked and they were told from a Disney spokesperson that they would be banking an announcement there. But I can't find anything where Disney came out as a company and said that just the mm-hmm. a spokesperson said that. So yeah. it's it'll either be Essence Fest or it'll be D23 Expo, or it'll be both. And they'll they'll drop another they'll say, oh, but we have some exclusive news for you and it'll be another piece of concept art yeah. or it'll be the it, it'll it'll be the new um ride vehicle or something <laughs> or yeah, you're, they'll drag you're it most out likely correct on that yeah and then they're going to have a, another disney princess concert um at 4 15 as well um in there too so uh yeah. which should be fun they're gonna have some princes too apparently yeah I will probably be skipping that. Oh, really? I like yeah, these concerts. I I feel like, well, I, I guess it's kind of hard to say. I feel like that's one of the things that could have drawn me in if it would have been like a night one. But on the final night of it, you know, I, I, I feel like I don't want to end my day on that. So I'll, I'll probably, that's the only one to me besides the, the Disney branded television that I'm like, I don't. I don't know if this is for me, but I legends always has to be by itself, but I like that they're blending, you know, instead of doing animation by itself or Disney plus necessarily by itself. I like that they're, they're breaking it up this way with Disney together and then Marvel and Lucasfilm together. I think that's smart. Doesn't it seem like they're giving us a fighting chance of getting to see all the big presentations? Yes. And that yes, they've never they done before. So, um, but, and also, uh, Walt Disney Archives, um, stage, what's going on there? They've made an announcement and it's going to be, um, they're going to have all kinds of people like Becky Klein's going to be there. People from Walt Disney Imagineering, Bob Weiss from Imagineering's going to be there, Stacia Martin, the artist, and they're going to look at, um, 
the 50-year legacy of the Main Street Electrical Parade. They're going to look back at the 80s and 90s edition of the Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah, let's skip a couple <laughs> of the others. And then the first half century of the Walt Disney World Resort and things like that. So, and then, um, there, and then I guess the archives team is going to be looking at, um, they're going to talk about the new Disney 100 exhibition. It's opening at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia next February mm-hmm. as well. So that's, uh, so that's, um, some of those things sound exciting too. So a lot of stuff coming up. Did you hear the, what, Disneyland Paris is announced what they're going to test, you know, because I guess like out here, especially at Disneyland, you know, people are getting upset that they can't get reservations. So they are, um, they're going to start a waiting list. They're going to start testing that. And then they'll let you know, I don't know how much in advance they let you know that, Hey, you, you can get in today. You have a reservation. Yeah. So, um, it's interesting. The one thing that, as you just said it, that came to my mind is like, well, how far in advance do you find out? Because if it's day of, I mean, that's not, that, that's not enough. (laughs) And then, especially if you're in a situation like Disneyland, what happens if you find out day of, like, oh, yep, you get to go, or even the night before? And at that point, you're like, well, I can't, I can't. So now do you get your, at least at Disneyland Resort, do you get your your slap on the wrist, your punishment and demerit for for not being able to go and use your your park reservation? So uh, it, it it's very interesting, and I hope it works for Disneyland Paris and it 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 fits the people who are visiting those parks, but. It feels like it, it's not something that could easily, mostly Disneyland. Yeah. I don't think Walt Disney World has the same amount of problems with it, just because mm-hmm. it seems like availability is still pretty good, um, you know, a, l- a little bit further out than necessarily Disneyland is. Yeah, 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 we'll see. It's interesting. And you can't take yourself off the waiting list. That was one of the things I read. So... What did you think of the former chairman of Disney General Entertainment content, Peter Rice, being let go by Bob Chapek? Bob Chapek, very unceremoniously. I honestly don't have any thoughts really on it, besides it being intriguing. Like you know, obviously the the talk of it is that Bob Chapek felt uh, potentially threatened by how he could be as a leader but every time i looked up they did with fox searchlight they got a lot of acclaim back in the day and it never really talked about what he was doing now and i mean i'm sure mm-hmm. he had his hand in a lot of stuff so i'm not trying to sit here and say that he wasn't carrying his weight or doing anything like that but i for me it's hard to it's really hard to dig in and be like, yes, this is a, a complete outrage when they didn't let him be a bigger part of the on two different levels then on the fact that he was dismissed in a very terrible way by JPEG. And also that, you know, he never got the fair shake, I think, that he probably deserved at Disney, given the tenure that he put into his time at Fox and then with Disney too. Cause 
what they said he was there for like 30 years or something yeah that's a it's a long time to just be told okay yeah and we're not explaining why which is always awful but um yeah and i guess it shows the um Sort of the insecurity, maybe, of Bob Chapek in a bit. Although, didn't Bob Iger let go of somebody that he thought was um, considered his second-in-command? Maybe. (laughs) I I think he did. It was, oh, gosh, I can't remember. But but, uh, I think Bob Iger did something similar. No, it's definitely a potential. Like, I, I can understand being in... I can understand being in the position of being a CEO and, you know, being worried about who could they replace me with and do I need to be afraid of them? Like, I, I totally get that. Um, it's, however, maybe they needed to be a little bit more like Eric Larson and be self-reflective. So, uh, not to bring it all the way back around, but yeah, it's, uh, just just a weird weird situation and you know then as us as disney fans we have to we have to read into it even more so that that adds another level to it gosh i'll have to think about who it was it was something and i it was it was a very similar kind of thing and the rumor always was that he was going to be bob Iger's successor and then bob got rid of him and of course, Michael Eisen got rid of Jeffrey Katzenberg because Jeffrey wanted, he was vying for, he wanted to be assured he would be in Mike, he would replace Michael Eisner. So Mike, Mike Eisner finally yeah. disposed of him. So I guess it happens. It's very Game of Thrones like <laughs> over in that, that industry. We also want to wish all fathers, grandfathers, everyone, um, um, father figures a very happy Father's Day. This weekend, we hope you have a fun and relaxing time, um, um, you know, on your day. So I, I used several resources for this episode. Um, some books I used. The Nine Old Men, Lessons, Techniques, and Inspiration from Disney's Greatest Animators by Andreas Stasia. Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, Masters of Animation. This was the catalog for the Walt Disney Family Museum's um, exhibition on the Nine Old Men. It was curated by Don Hahn, and the text was written by Charles Solomon. And then Walt Disney's Nine Old Men and the Art of Animation by John Canemaker. Some websites and articles that I used. The Disney Wiki on Eric Larson. Eric Larson, the animator's animator on the Walt Disney Family Museum's blog. The D23 um, article on Eric Larson. And a video. And, you know, I'm always saying one of the series that I wish were back on the um, Disney Plus is the Disney Family Album Series. It was 20 episodes, superbly done. Um, Sam's Disney Diary on their YouTube channel has them. And so I watched the one on Eric Larson. So if you want to meet Eric Larson, um, Craig will provide a link to the Disney Family Album episode on Eric Larson um, in there. And also what I learned is when I was Googling around on Eric, um, some of his uh, lectures are actually available on YouTube. So I didn't have time to listen to them, but something that I might do. So just to, just out of curiosity. 
So, but you will love the Disney Family album, definitely. So, if you don't any, if you if you only check out one link, Craig puts in our show notes, check out the Disney Family album. So, all right, Craig. Until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Uh, as always, you can find me on the various shows I'm on, on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or DisneyPlug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.